Welcome to WPCast, the professional WordPress podcast for WordPress entrepreneurs. I'm David. And I'm Doug. This is episode 12, promoting, developing, and supporting premium plugins and themes. Let's get started with the change log. What have you been up to, David? I just migrated to a new email marketing tool called Trip. Basically, the tagline of Trip is lightweight marketing automation. So it kind of takes some of those, you know, fairly advanced features that the likes of Infusionsoft or Onterbot have is where, you know, based on a, a user's behavior uh, and certain events, you can basically like send them to like different lists or different funnels. And just basically based on what they do, you can modify what kind of emails you send to them, which I think is really cool. And I haven't used Infusionsoft, but Drip has a much more like entry-level price point, And I think it's a lot more lightweight. So, you know, you don't have to talk to a sales team and, you know, the user interface is pretty simple and easy to use. And I think it leaves out a lot of the bloat that the likes of Infusionsoft have. And what I'm really using it is for is, you know, when somebody installs the free plugin, for example, they can sign up for a crash course on how to, you know, build pricing tables that convert. So I'm using it for that. I'm using it that, you know, when they buy the plugin, based on what kind of plan they buy, you know, I might send them like different emails. I can just do like all kinds of like interesting behavioral stuff. Doug, what, what are you using for email marketing? So I'm using MailChimp. I don't do a whole lot of email marketing, but I think MailChimp's recently added some very basic marketing automation features. I haven't had a chance to test it out, but from what I can see that it's not at the level of drip yet, or, you know, maybe they're, they're, yeah. they're trying to, uh, kind of improve the product, I think, to, to get to that next level because Drip is kind of filling in the, the space in between the basic MailChimp and kind of like the, the super bloated advanced yeah. Infusionsoft. I'm not sure, though, if they're going to go that down that route too far because I think MailChimp is really, you know, the way it is built and made, it's, you know, it's for people that just want to have like very that have very simple use cases, you know, like a corner store that's uh, sending like a monthly newsletter to their customers or something like that, or, you know, like a yoga studio or something like that. So I'm not really sure if it would make sense for them because it is a different target audience. I think something like Drip only makes sense if, if you're running like an internet heavy business and you're having like complex or at least somewhat sophisticated sales funnels with, you know, events and different things that people can do and where you want to send them different emails based on behavior. So I'm not really sure if... MailChimp is going to go down that route too far. And I'm not, also not sure if it would be a great idea for them, but it, it is interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what happens in that space over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those things where, you know, they're kind of testing the waters and you, you never know, yeah. you know, if, it, if it's going to be something that they'll keep pursuing or, or not. Yeah. So recently what's new with me is that I, I've been trying out this new managed hosting called Flywheel. And when I say new, it's probably been around for a year or so, but I've been I've been really happy with it so far. The reason why I started looking for a new managed hosting provider is because Synthesis, which I'm currently using, is not officially supporting multi-site installations anymore. So mm-hmm. that's pretty crucial to my business. You know, everything is is run on on a large multi-site installation. Right. So, you know, even though I, I think I'm grandfathered in, when a company just kind of drop support for something it's it's usually not a good sign and yeah you know for for people using multi-site i don't think this is necessarily uh you know reflecting badly on the company for you know anyone uh not using multi-site but i got some indications from from a friend of mine who was asking them that they were probably gonna be stricter 
on multi-site installations and, you know, maybe mm -hmm. support it less. And there were a few features that they support for single-site installs that they don't support for multi-site. And right. when I asked about it, they said, oh, you know, we'll get around to it later. And they never did. And now I'm, I'm sure they won't. And, and one of the things about Flywheel is that I just checked out their website before the recording. And they are explicitly also mentioning in the pricing table that they're supporting multi-site, which might actually be a bit market. So maybe, maybe there's a lot of people that want to have the multi-sites on um, yeah. managed hosting, but maybe also, I'm not sure about WP Engine, but I can see the possible headaches that come with it. So it's probably a really smart move from Flywheel to kind of like scoop up all those you know, customers. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a market there. It's more work to support that. But when I was doing some research into different managed hosting providers, they seem like the clear winner as far as multi-site support goes. Mm -hmm. To me, that's probably the, one of the most critical things. Obviously, security and, and uptime and, and all of that are also important. Yeah. You know, I, I emailed their support and, you know, got a response from their founder. And they told me that they have, you know, absolutely no plans to discontinue multi-site support. You never know if, you know, what they tell you is, right. is actually going to be their plan, whether they know it or not. But that was, you know, that much more confidence. The fact that they explicitly state multi-site support on their website. And, you know, it was also nice. Uh, I, I got to meet a few of the guys and chat with them over at WordPress, uh, mm -hmm. WordCamp New York a couple of weeks ago. So that was pretty cool too. Cool. And you're pretty happy with it so far, right? You showed me the website and it's it's blazing fast. Yeah, I, I thought, um, and, and Synthesis is fast, but it my site's gotten even faster on Flywheel. And, you know, I use a couple of different things to test speed and performance. The main one I use is a website called GT Metrics. Mm -hmm. I also use Pingdom and webpagetest.org. And with all of these, I got probably, you know, cutting cutting the load time in half on Flywheel, which was, was really surprising to me. Wow. Any idea why this might be? Do you think the service response time is just, you know, so much better? Or? The server response time seemed to be the biggest factor, but there were some other things that I think their built-in caching might be better, and it's possible I could have configured things incorrectly when I was on Synthesis, but mm -hmm. basically the Flywheel setup has all the caching built in. You you can't change it, which is something that normally I, I dislike because I you know, I like to be technical and mess around with the settings. But with when I was using Synthesis and I, I still have sites on Synthesis, but they use W three Total Cache, which is a really good caching plugin, but there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. to configure and you know it's it's kind of like a lot of trial and error if you're not an expert on caching. Yeah. And it's also it's easy to mess up things that way as well. Um, I've had a lot of headaches in the past with caching on my sites. One of the other big things that really impressed me is the CDN setup was just the click of a button on Flywheel. And I can't tell you how many tens of hours I spent trying to configure the CDN when I was on multi-site on Synthesis. Oh, really? Yeah, so... Huh. At least so on WP Engine, but of course I'm not using multi-site, but... Uh, um, I think there's also just a button that you need to click or a checkbox or something like that, and uh, the CDN automatically works. Cool. Well, sounds sounds like a pretty promising, you know, new WordPress host on the scene. Definitely keep us updated how how that goes with your site. So, in in a future episode, we'll talk more about managed hosting, and at that time, I'll you know have use this a bit more to to give some more information about it. So let's move on to the core. 
this week we are talking about promoting, developing, and supporting premium plugins and themes. And the reason is we got an email from Dan Cameron. So Dan had built a, a plugin called Smart eCart, and uh, he was able to do that successfully and, and sell that. And so he's building an, a new plugin over at SproutApps.co. Uh, it's called Sprout Invoices. And so he's asking us about what to expect when launching a premium plugin. Yeah, and so I've got one premium plugin. So, you know, my experience is somewhat limited, but I, I do have like a bit of a little bit of experience. Um, we don't really have much theme experience, but we assume that a lot of the things that we talk about here are also going to be relevant to theme businesses. So one thing that Dan asked about is sales and, you know, are they going to be slow in the beginning and then ramp up? So what I saw with easy pricing tables is, well, the thing is I already had a free plugin out there a couple of months that got a good amount of downloads a couple of months before I launched the premium version. So as soon as I launched the premium version, I had some decent sales so so they were they were not like zero so there wasn't like such a big ramp up there i did notice that you know a couple of months as i probably added more features and improved the marketing page and just like the whole marketing side in general the sales probably doubled so again compared to the initial launch month and i'm not entirely sure if i'm maxing out right now i think there's still room for more but um i do think i've hit like a certain ceiling i, I don't see my easy pricing tables premium sales quadruple or so over the next year i think growth has pretty much slowed down there's still like a little bit of growth but uh, i don't think i'm gonna be quadrupling sales or so i've also seen that the monthly revenue that i'm getting is very predictable so it's obviously not SaaS where somebody's on a subscription and you you don't have the luxury when you're selling WordPress plugins, but uh, I, I am getting a fairly stable amount of sales. And there are some seasonal fluctuations, of course. I think summer is usually, when people go on holiday, there's a little bit less going on and probably December. I'm not sure about December, but I expect December to not be the best month of the year because usually business sales come to a halt during December. So one thing that I think has yet to be seen is uh, the renewal rate. Yeah. So... You know, your your plugin, you sell one year of support and updates, and since it's been out for less than a year, you, you don't know what your your rate of, of renewing customers is just yet. Exactly. So from talking to some other people um, that do WordPress plugins, they've said they've seen, you know, kind of renewal rates in the range of like 15 or 20% or so, which sounds kind of... Yeah, that sounds exactly like what I would expect as well. Because as we discussed in the last episode about security, tons of people aren't even updating their plugins anyway. So, you know, if you're not if you're not even updating plugins and logging into WordPress, you're obviously not gonna be, you know, buying a new license so you can get updates. But I, I think it probably also depends on what kind of target audience you're targeting. So I think Pippin with his easy digital downloads uh, shopping cart. I, I think there's some there's like some mission critical extensions plugins in there premium plugins that he's selling there where i would just think he's gonna see a much higher percentage than just 15 or 20 of people renewing because it's such an important part of their you know shopping cart that they don't want to risk things breaking because they didn't want to pay 50 bucks or something like that for an update yeah i think another factor is the amount of updates that you do do over the course of the year i think if yes. if you know, in, in your example, you push out a fair number of updates. Yeah. So people see that things are changing constantly. Whereas if, if you push out one update every six months or once a year, 
<clears throat> and right. somebody never saw or, you know, saw maybe one update, they they would probably question. It's like, well, why would I need to renew if this guy doesn't actually update the plugin? Yeah, that's that's a good point. And that actually reminds me that I that I probably haven't done the best job communicating a lot of those updates. You know, I kind of ended up rolling them out, but I I didn't. Not in every case did I email my customers and let them know that, hey, there's a new version and, you know, we've got like this new really cool feature. So I think I do need to try to do a better job of communicating those things because it's probably going to factor into, into the number of people that are eventually going to renew. So related to sales, you're using uh, easy digital downloads to handle yep. your product sales and, and the software licenses. Exactly. So I think there, so. there's this... Um, plugin for easy digital downloads that's called software licensing and i think that's really the killer feature i like easy digital downloads in general but that was the absolute killer feature that made me choose this product because um the software licensing extension from easy digital downloads just makes it really easy to integrate a licensing system into your plugin and even more important than integrating a license um it allows you to roll out automatic updates so the problem with a lot of premium plugins and themes is that even if they release new updates they send it to you via email and you have to you know delete the old version and manually upload the new version and it's just like such a huge you know usability nightmare really for the user having to spend five minutes just like updating to a new version of the plugin so uh, using easy digital downloads I'm able to just do all of that automatically. So I, I imagine that having a better user experience for, for doing those upgrades, you know, will help with the renewals. Yeah, I, I think so. And also, hopefully, just make sure people have a good experience using my products. That's really that's really what I'm hoping. So next, we're going to talk about promoting your plugin or theme. David, you've obviously had a, a fair bit of experience with easy pricing tables. So do you want to get into that? Sure. So I think one thing to note with easy pricing tables is that it's something that Rob Walling would call a aspirin business. Basically, it means that people are searching for it. So it's something where somebody has a very specific pain point that is clearly articulated, like, I want to put a pricing table on my WordPress site. So they go and they, you know, maybe they check out some blogs or they probably search Google or the WordPress directory to find a solution uh, for their problem. So... Since there is this very specific pain point that people are actually looking actively to solve, I'm mostly promoting my plugin using the WordPress.org repository. So that I've got this free plugin in there that people that want to put pricing tables on the website find using you know the WordPress search or using Google or something else. And I've had a lot of success with that approach. There's a couple other approaches that I have been experimenting with or that are still kind of on a to-do list. So one of them is retargeting. So I would basically show ads on Facebook to people that visited my sales page but didn't buy. And the tool I was using is called Perfect Audience. And I've had so-so um, experiences. I think the problem is that just easy pricing tables at $29 is just too cheap to be able for me to be very profitable with retargeting because the clicks on Facebook do kind of tend to be expensive. The nice thing is you're getting a lot of views and you don't have to pay for them. So, you know, maybe you're raising a little bit of brand awareness, but um, um, clicks kind of turned out to be like about a dollar or so each. And I would have to have a decent conversion rate on those kind of clicks to even break even. And I looked at the data after, after you know, letting it run for a couple of months and it just didn't look to be very profitable for me. Have you been using retargeting on anything else like Google AdWords, for example? No, I 
I have not. I was only doing Facebook retargeting. Yeah, so so AdWords retargeting might also be something uh, worth looking at, but I'm just not sure if it's worth it with a $29 product. This is a one-time purchase and there's you know, a fairly low lifetime value. Of course, one thing that might be worth experimenting with is, you know, talking of AdWords is to, to run an AdWords campaign, but I just don't see any way in which at a $29 price point, I just don't think that I could be profitable running AdWords for this product. I think the lifetime value is just too low. Yep. So other things that I'm kind of starting with right now is doing a bit more content marketing. So I'm becoming a bit more active on the Fat Cat Apps blog. And the, the premise kind of there is, um, you know, to produce content that's interesting to my target audience on like a weekly basis or so and just kind of like building a bit more awareness so that people that read the content you know wants to have a pinpoint that is related to a product that i sell they're hopefully going to think of of me um you you also doing you're doing a little bit of content marketing right doug i've done a little bit in the past but i haven't done much lately and then you know with pod wp i I plan to do to do a whole bunch and ramp that up and see how it goes yeah and of course doing this podcast is also a form of content marketing i I do expect the content marketing to take a you know it's not gonna have like drastic visible results um for a long time so i think that's gonna be more of a slow ramp up i do have an affiliate program in place and i'm using pippin's excellent affiliate wp plugin i haven't really been actively trying to recruit affiliates though so the success has been pretty modest so far and trying to promote the affiliate program a bit more is one of the things on my to-do list. I've also just started to experiment with paid reviews. So there's a couple of fairly big WordPress blogs that offer to review your premium plugin for the price point depends, but usually it's around like $250 or so. I just had one of those um, go out a couple of weeks ago and I think it's also too early to tell if those are working or not. But I do think it's probably a good thing because Maybe people also searching for um, your product are then going to like find the review and see like somebody else's opinion. And even though those reviews are paid, they are, you know, honest. So if there's problems, they they still talk about that as well. What, what are your thoughts on those uh, paid reviews, Doug? So I think it, it can be pretty effective depending on, on the reputation of the website. I definitely see why people would need to charge to do these kinds of reviews because if you run a popular site like that, you're probably going to get requests all the time. And I see the the need to, you know, request payment for doing these kinds of reviews. But at, at the same time, I think if people know that people are, that plugin authors are paying for reviews, then, you know, maybe it, it does bring up that question of, you know, well, is, is the writer biased? And, you know, this is probably a whole long debate, but yeah, if you're willing to pay somebody to review your plugin and mm-hmm. you're willing to, you know, kind of subject it to an honest test, you're probably going to have a pretty good plugin to begin with. Cause if, if your plugin wasn't very good and you're paying money, you're either, you either are wasting your money or you don't know what you're doing. So I think the majority of people who are actually paying for the reviews probably have good plugins. Yeah. And to be honest, even though it was a paid review, I actually felt a little bit nervous about um, <laughs> submitting it, yeah. submitting it to be reviewed. Anyways, there's a lot of ways, but uh, other methods for promoting your plugin is one thing that I just kind of missed completely is you know traditional kind of PR and like reaching out to you know reaching out to blogs, not not paid reviews, but just reaching out to blogs and letting them know about your new uh, plugin. And I just I don't know, I just kind of completely did not do that. And as my plugin started to get a little bit more traction in the repository, I kind of started to get written up on some of 
those sites just automatically because I kept popping up. In retrospect, if I could do it again, I would have, you know, reached out to sites like WP Tavern. Um, they're very open to people letting them know that they launched new products. So that's what I would have done. Yeah, there's also, you know, a bit of a balance you need to draw because if you if you do a massive uh, launch campaign without anybody having used your plugin, not being out there for a while, a lot of people, you know, might look at it and, and then never look at it again. If it's something that's in the process of being developed or something that just gets launched but doesn't have enough reviews, you know, somebody might, you know, take a look at, at, you know, that there might be like one review out there and just kind of determine that it's just too new and maybe they'll look at it later and then never come back to it. Right. So having that kind of drip in over time, you know, may actually be a better strategy than doing a big launch. Uh, good, good point. Anyway, so um, we do have links to, in the show notes to um, two additional blog posts about promoting plugins. One is on the FatCadabs blog and one is on WPScoop. So check out the show notes for that. So the next thing we want to talk about is developing your plugin. So someone who's not a plugin developer probably doesn't even know about some of these technologies. But um, do you want to go into what you use for managing your development? Sure. So um, I'll keep this short to not you know, bore people too much, but we're like a small team of developers and we're using Git and we're going to do a separate episode on version control at some point, but basically we've got the private Bitbucket repository for our code and that's where all our code is stored. And then, you know, we're basically committing our changes there. In terms of the logistics, we do have separate repositories for both the easy pricing tables, free and premium plugins. So it is a little bit of, you know, extra work, kind of like merging code back and forth between them. But that's that's just kind of how it is. So for people that, you know, don't know about these things, keeping repositories and and using Bitbucket, you're keeping track of the changes that are being made. And when you have multiple people working on a plugin, you really need to know who's doing what and, you know, when things were changed. Exactly. Especially uh, when your plugin starts getting bigger and more complicated with a, with a lot of files. Yeah, and it also makes it easy to, for example, roll back certain changes. So, you know, if, if a commit, if a change that somebody made introduces a bug, then you can just like roll it back with a simple command. So I think it's it's really important. Even if you're just like doing it by yourself, I would say recommend um, using version control, but especially if you're working with a team. So one of the things that you do is you you're constantly adding new features and making improvements to your plugin. And, you know, some, some plugin authors don't really do this much. And, you know, just wondering how you handle new requests. And I have a Trello board. So Trello is a really nice um, project management tool that I use for all of my stuff. But I do have a dedicated Trello board for, you know, for example, easy pricing tables, possibly new features. And, you know, whenever I get a feature request or whenever I just kind of come up with something that I think could be cool, could be an interesting idea to add. I just add it there and then, you know, every once in a while I go through everything and the most important or, you know, most interesting or most requested things, I I then move to a development board, which again, I have a different board where all my development tasks are, which is then shared, you know, with like my developers and we are kind of moving things through different stages uh, until until we launch the new feature. And again, this this might be an interesting topic for a future episode, I think, to talk a little bit more about project management, but we probably don't want to bore you guys too much right now. So the last topic we're going to be covering in this episode is supporting your premium plugin or theme. So when you got started 
you were pretty much doing everything yourself. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So I was like doing the coding myself and I was answering support myself. So I just set up an email address and, you know, had everything sent through straight to my normal inbox. And I was just answering the emails in there. Since I have now hired a full-time developer who's helping me with, you know, both maintaining and adding things to easy pricing tables, but also working on new projects. Um, I've basically had him also take over most of the support because it just kind of frees me up to kind of work on some of the bigger things that need to be done. And there is like a certain pressure on you when, you know, like every every morning you wake up, you're like, okay, you know, there's probably some support tickets um, in my inbox. Might not even be that much work, might not even be that many tickets, but it's just like, you kind of feel, or at least I felt like I, you know, I basically had to check support first thing in the morning because it's really important that my users or my customers in particular have a good experience. So most of the support at this point is, you know, handed off to my full-time developer. And I am using a support tool called Support B, which it's somewhat similar to using, um, what are you using? Help Scout, Help right? Scout, like, yeah. I think the, both of these products are pretty similar. Customers can email you their requests and they don't have to log into some separate system. Yeah. And so one of the biggest, exactly. It's one of the biggest reasons that I um, migrated to support B was that since I now had a developer who was also handling support emails, it's not very practical to give access to the same, you know, Gmail account, for example, to two people at the same time. It's just, it's, there's, there's like problems with the credentials and the login. So um, using, using a support ticketing system like support B, you know, it just makes it easy to give everybody an account and then everybody sees the same inbox. You're pretty happy with um, Help Scout, right? Yeah, so I've been using it for a few months and it's pretty easy to use. It kind of acts like, like just a separate email account. And yeah. I imagine Support B is pretty similar. Yeah, so so I think with both um, Help Scout and Support B, uh, one of the nice things is that the email conversations actually look like emails and there's no... I think the send desk, that's a problem where, you know, when you get a support reply, you, there's like all this ugly stuff going on and then it yeah, says ticket like you don't, numbers. You, yeah. yeah, and don't write beneath this line or something like that. So I think both support B and help Scout just make it look like a normal email conversation. I also had a look at help Scout and the reason that I chose support B is I just found the interface to me much nicer. I just, I don't know, help Scout looked really ugly, support B looked really nice and also support B supported the Gmail keyboard shortcuts. So I mm. could use the yeah. same Gmail keyboard shortcuts that I'm already used to, which Helpscut didn't. And also, I, I know the guys behind Support B, so I thought, you know, might as well support them. Last thing in terms of the support. So when I get a new ticket to Support P or when a free user leaves a reply on the wordpress.org support forum, I basically get a push notification to Slack, which is kind of like a chat room tool which we are using and I'm not going to go into too many details there but that's basically how we get our push notifications that somebody has a problem and then we just act on that. So in quick summary we covered sales promoting, developing and supporting your premium plugin or theme. Now we're going to move on to the tips and tricks. So what do you have for us this week David? Um, there's this really cool uh, graphic design tool for Mac called Sketch by a company called Bohemian Coding and uh, the tagline is basically uh, for Sketch Professional Digital Design for Mac. And what I like about it is I'm not like a design guru. I, I don't really know how to use Photoshop and I also don't really have any desire to learn Photoshop. Sketch just makes it really easy to create really, well, nice looking if, <laughs> if you have a good sense of design, but it just makes it easy to create designs on your Mac. It's just very simple, but um, still very powerful at the same time. So I definitely 
recommend checking that. Cool. What about you, Doug? My recommendation for this week is Skype Call Recorder for Mac. So we use this as a, as a backup for our podcast recording. And basically what it does is it allows you to automatically record your calls. And it also records video calls. So basically you can, you know, it saves it as a .mov file and then you can export it to different formats. Uh, you can even split the sides of the conversation. So I, I find this pretty pretty useful for when we first started this podcast, we were just using this and it was okay, but you know, we we get better audio quality out of Audacity. But Yeah, so we're saving it locally. Basically we figured out the, the audio quality is much better if both of us save our file locally and just let the call recorder run as a backup. Yeah. But for, for simplicity, if, if you just needed to record a conversation and, you know, maybe you didn't need any editing or, um, or you know, didn't want to, you know, mess with that and, uh, you know, it can just record your conversations. And it may also be useful if you're talking with clients or you have some kind of meeting, just having that backup recording of everything that happened in case you missed something or, you know, if you don't want to take notes, you know, during the yeah. call, I think that could be pretty useful. You might be technically obliged to let them know that you're recording them which i'll probably recommend but but yeah it's definitely a very useful tool yeah so it's it's pretty cheap i think it's probably you know 30 or 40 dollars and we'll link up to this in the show notes as well so that's it for this episode you can leave a comment or voicemail and find the show notes with links at wpcast.fm slash premium if you like this episode you can leave us a review on itunes thanks for listening bye bye bye